0: Maybe seated this morning. At this time, we dismiss the middle schoolers, and then they'll go upstairs in the youth room for their lesson. The rest of us, we're going to start a new book. Maybe seated this. Maybe seated Hebrews in the back of the New Testament. So, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter one, we'll start at verse one. Do a verse-by-verse study in the Book of Hebrews as a source of reference for you uh, to find Hebrews. You have the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy, Titus, and then you have, if I'm correct, Philemon then hebrews and you'll find hebrews right before you go to the book of james so hebrews chapter one if you need a bible just raise your hand jerry has some in his hand in the back if you're towards the front front there is some on the front platform so the book of hebrews always exciting when we start a new book here at calvary chapel and uh, hebrews is going to be an extremely important study for us uh, for various reasons matter of fact a lot of christians Uh, very seldom have read all through Hebrews or have done a study in Hebrews partly because it can be a little bit technical but this book is recorded not only for us today and it is for us today but to give you a little bit of background it was a book that was uh, written to specifically to the Jewish believers of the first century who have come out of that background of Judaism and now they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ And as they were believers at that time, they were experiencing tremendous temptation to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to Judaism. And as we read the Old Testament and having an understanding of the Old Testament, which we have done on Wednesday nights, going through those books of the law and going through the Old Testament and the book of Psalms, we're going to see that Hebrew is going to make reference, a lot of reference to Psalms, making reference the book of leviticus and to exodus and having an understanding of those books being familiar with them is going to greatly help us and aid us in understanding what is being told to us here in this book the book of hebrews now as you recall that in the book of exodus as the children of israel came out of egypt and they uh, would come to the mountain of god that God made a covenant with them. They are a covenant people. But also at that time, they would receive uh, the Levitical priesthood. There were the sacrifices and the offerings and the feasts that were given to them. And it would be later on in their history, of course, when they came into the Promised Land. And we know that it would be Solomon that built the first temple, and then that temple destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, After their captivity by Babylon, they would come back into Jerusalem rebuilt the second temple, but this is all part of their history the old covenant, the law, the sacrifices, the feasts, and and everything that they observed. It's been a part of their history at the time of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for 1500 years. And the Jews that were becoming believers, and remember that most of the early church believers would-be Jews as the gospel would spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there would be a great temptation to go back to all of that, to have the mindset of, well, what was all that for? The Old Testament and the sacrifices and the feast, was it all for nothing? But there would be a temptation to go back to that which had been instilled in them and their fathers for so long. And also, when you became a believer back then and you were Jewish, you would be isolated by your family. You uh, would be persecuted by your brethren, just as we see in the New Testament, that many of the Christians ended up being uh, persecuted. We know that Paul experienced persecution by the hands of his brethren that is the jews as we read about his life in the new testament and those jewish believers would begin to think that the rituals and the sacrifices and perhaps the levitical system was somehow superior to the new covenant that Jesus had now established. And perhaps it will be easier to go back to those things. And what makes the book of Hebrews so valuable to you and to me today is that, uh, as it was when it was penned, that it stresses to us that Jesus, his incarnation, his substitutionary death on Calvary's cross, his priesthood is superior to the old covenant and to the levitical system and, and so the sufficiency of what jesus did for us is going to be stressed in the book of hebrews he is superior to any religious system he is superior to any religious leader he is superior to any thing that has come along and what the study of the book of hebrews is going to do for you and for me is when somebody comes along and says you have to observe these rituals you have to do this thing That we're going to understand that it is jesus that is superior to all that and what he did on the cross and going to the cross for you and for me that it is sufficient for us matter of fact the word better is going to be used here in the book of hebrews some 12 times i believe that jesus that his sacrifice was better than the old covenant sacrifices which would include that they had to keep doing sacrifices over and over and over again of the animals. Why? Because it wasn't enough to take away sin once and for all. And that's another term that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, what Jesus did for us once and for all that Jesus is superior to any religious system. His priesthood is a superior priesthood. He ministers in a superior tabernacle, a heavenly tabernacle, that his sacrifice is superior, of course, to the animal sacrifices, because he died for you and for me once and for all. And also, as we're gonna see here, that he is building, that is the Lord, a better temple, not made with hands, but a temple, a living temple, and the temple that was standing there in Jerusalem, as those Jews would look at the magnificent temple and hear the trumpets blowing and the, and the feasts that were celebrated and, and all these things that were a part of their lives, that temple in a few short years after this book is penned would end up being destroyed. And the sacrifices would stop at that time. And these believers needed to understand their security wasn't in the temple or in the sacrifices or in the rituals or in the feast. It is in Jesus. And he sits in an exalted place, as we're even going to see today. And now we can rest in that and what he has done for you and for me. So as we begin to, to look at the book of Hebrews, again, some background. The book of Hebrews, as I mentioned to you, we have to put our thinking caps on a little bit as we go through this. But I also pray that we have uh, application made to us to where it touches our hearts. Now, the person or the author who penned the Book of Hebrews—it's unclear because the author does not identify himself in this letter. As as you know that as you go through the the epistles, an epistle is a letter uh, in the New Testament, uh, you have many of the writers that identified themselves, such as Paul. Uh, you have Peter. You have John. You have James you have Jude but here the author does not identify himself as the writer here um, there has been much debate on who wrote this book who was the human instrument that wrote these words down many Bible scholars I think that most of them believe that it was Paul the apostle that wrote the book of Hebrews uh, whoever wrote this book it is evident that they had a great understanding of the Old Testament Old Testament theology the Levitical priesthood And they had a a good Greek vocabulary. This book, as I mentioned to you, is somewhat technical. So some say that it was Paul who was the great scholar. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He excelled in, in Judaism. That He was the one that, as even in the book of Acts, he would go into the synagogues. And he would show the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is Lord. And and so he had a great knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And so some point out that it must be Paul the Apostle. Also, they will say that this letter seems to be Pauline. And and what that means is this style of writing seems to point to Paul the Apostle. When we get to chapter 10, there's actually going to be some clues that are going to be given to us in that chapter who penned this epistle. Uh, It tells us there that... You know, the writer was uh, one that had been in bonds of course that certainly was Paul at times in his ministry that he writes it from Italy uh, this book and also that he was a companion of Timothy and of course Timothy was a young protege of Paul but I think that maybe perhaps one of the biggest clues that Paul is the writer the author it comes from Peter because Peter when he writes his first epistle in chapter 1 uh, of 1 Peter verse 1 he begins that letter by saying to the pilgrims of the dispersion that is he's writing to the jewish believers that had been dispersed particularly because of persecution when he closes his second letter in second peter chapter 3 verse 15 peter writes that just as our dear brother paul also wrote to you so some believe that perhaps that Peter is given a hint that Paul is the one that wrote to you, Jews, the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure, but Paul perhaps is one that is the indeed the writer of the book of Hebrews. Some have said that perhaps it was Barnabas. You know, Barnabas. He was a scholar. He traveled with Paul in that first missionary journey. They later would separate. He was a scholar he was a Levite according to Acts chapter 4 verse 36 and he would have a good understanding of the Levitical priesthood some have said perhaps that it's Apollos you might remember him mentioned in the book of Acts that he was a great orator a great scholar knowledgeable powerful speaker so you can do more study on that some suggest and point to Luke I think it's less likely that it was Luke. Keep in mind that Luke, we just finished his gospel, that Luke was not one of the disciples of Jesus. He was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. So I think it's less likely that Luke is one that wrote this book. But we do know this for sure. Whoever was the human instrument that wrote the book of Hebrews, the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, right? Is the Lord that wrote this book. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Do not forget this verse. Yet all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So this book is going to profit us, be beneficial to us, going to speak to us in a very powerful way. So with that background, let's begin to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the Father's, by the prophets so God has spoken to man at various times and in various ways he spoke to Adam the first man he spoke to Abraham said I'll make you a, a great nation he spoke to Moses from the burning bush as he declared his name I am that I am he spoke through the prophets he spoke through angels God has spoken to man at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers, by the prophets, let's continue in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, In verse 4, having become so much better, there's that word, than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the writer of Hebrews is bringing out right away that Jesus is superior to the prophets, to the angels, and the son Jesus has spoken, you listen to him. The author of Hebrews is writing in such a manner that god has spoken the father through various ways at various times and the father that is god is speaking concerning his son that he is superior now you might recall in our luke study in luke chapter eight it's also recorded in matthew chapter seventeen that when jesus was on the mount mount of transfiguration that there is jesus transfigured he's glowing he's shining he along with elijah and moses Peter, James, and John that had gone up on the mountain with them were sleeping, and they woke up. They got a glimpse of it, and Peter said, It's good for us to be here. He was so excited. He says, Why don't we build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and and one for Jesus? And all of a sudden, they heard the voice of the Father that would say that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In other words, Peter You don't put Moses and Elijah on the same level as my son. The the law and the prophets. And this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. You need to hear him. In John's gospel, which emphasizes the deity of Jesus, Jesus, as he is there, uh, the religious leaders are challenging him, confronting him. And in John chapter 8, as those religious leaders would boast that they were Abraham's descendants, and we know that God spoke to Abraham, and Jesus made the point to them that I speak to the world those things which I heard from him, that is, from the Father. And he would go on to say in John chapter 12, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, this is important for us to understand this, because in these days in which we are living in, there are so many people that are out there that will just say, well, Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was a great teacher or a great theological thinker or had great philosophical ideas. He's more than that. He is the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He spoke nothing apart from God. He is the complete revelation of the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is not a way, He's not just a truth, and He's not just a life. He is the singular, definite article, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is superior because He is the Word. And then as we read in in verses 2 through 4... You have this sevenfold description that shows that Jesus is superior. You might want to highlight them or jot it down in your notes. First of all, in verse 2, he is the heir of all things, he is the heir of all that is the Father's. Now, as we make cross reference, we can go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that declares that Jesus created all things. All things were created through him and for him. And what is such a marvelous truth of the scriptures is that we are joint heirs with Christ, aren't we? Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Let me read it to you. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So Paul would say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 when he's bringing us into the heavenlies the spiritual blessings that are ours as believers. And in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, he writes, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. So the riches of God, which are undescribable, unsearchable to our finite minds, so wonderful, we can't understand it all. It's so glorious. The riches of God are ours because we are heirs of God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? That's wonderful. And when we understand that, Christian, and you make that your own, then you're not going to go out and prioritize the world when all of heaven is ours. But then Paul would say something remarkable in Ephesians chapter 1 while I'm I'm touching on that chapter in verse 18. And that is, his prayer for us is that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling that is heaven and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints that's a remarkable verse you see our inheritance is in christ joint heirs with christ which is indeed glorious but we are his inheritance in other words You are so precious, I am so precious and valuable to Jesus that He considers us His own inheritance. And I think about that and I think, really? Me? Am I that valuable? Do you love me that much? That I am the riches of the glory of His inheritance? What the Lord is saying in that, that I am looking so forward to you spending eternity with me. You are so valuable to me, so important to me that I consider you my inheritance. That is absolutely wonderful. So Jesus is superior because he is the word. The first description, he's the heir of all things. Secondly, as we continue in verse 2, he's the creator. He made the world's. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth Jesus listen is the creator he's not the created like the Mormons and the Jehovah witnesses will tell us and anybody that comes along and suggests that Jesus was created they are bringing you a false Jesus thirdly In this description of Jesus, which shows the superiority of our Lord, verse 3, he's the brightness of his glory. He reflects the glory of God, in other words. You might remember that in John chapter 17, when Jesus, right before he goes into the garden, that he is praying, and he's praying to the Father. And he says, Father, I have manifested your name. In other words, I've manifested, I have shined forth your name, not just talked about you, but I've manifested you, and He manifested, shined forth, reflected the Father perfectly, and we need to reflect the Lord in some way, in our lives to others. Paul would write in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six: "For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the world is in our hearts." to be reflecting to others, manifesting the Lord, the goodness and the love and the mercy of our Lord and the truth of our Lord to others. Number four, we read here that he's the express image of his person. You know, in that upper room, right before Jesus would go to the garden again, the last time with his disciples, that he would tell them that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. And that word image means like a photograph. He is the perfect representation in every way of the Father. He is the nature, he is the character, he is the essence of God. And that's why Jesus would declare to them, listen, Philip, you've been with me all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip was asking us, show us the Father. Ah, oh, Philip. If we want to know the heart of God, the character and the nature of God, it is me. Because the Father and I are one. He was the exact representation of the Father. Fifthly, the fifth description of Jesus that shows that he is superior to any of the prophets or angels or spiritual leaders. Number five, he upholds all things by the word of his power, verse three. In other words, he holds the whole universe together, held together by him. The scripture says that God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, again, all things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17 goes on to say, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What that means, all things consist. All things are being held together by him. And I've used this illustration before, but in physics, the, the law of physics tells us that, that like charges repel opposite attracts you see that very clearly with magnets if you have like charges they push against each other opposite attracts and in the nucleus of an atom jesus would create those atoms you have like charges such as positive charge protons and they can be packed together in, in an atom and scientists are amazed and wonder what really keeps the atom from repelling from exploding and there's all kinds of complicated theories, and physics that I don't fully understand, but I do understand this, that the Bible tells us that He holds all things together. He holds it all together. He's the Creator, and then Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 that one day the heavens and the earth are going to pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. One day Jesus is going to let it all go. And the heavens and the earth, as we now know, are going to go up in a huge nuclear reaction. We read about how the heavens and earth will melt away in Revelation chapter 20. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where we will be with him for all eternity. And we get to see him create all of that. But I do want to ask you this today. Are you letting him hold your life together? Because he wants to hold your life together. And he desires for you to submit to him and surrender to him and trust in him and rest in him. Because he's the one that's going to hold your life together. And if you're looking for anything else to hold you together, you know what's going to happen. Over time, you're going to find it. Everything's going to unravel. And things are going to begin to explode. Allow the Lord to truly hold your life together because he wants to. Number six, he himself purged our sins, verse three. He provided for the cleansing of our sins, something that we talked about quite extensively as we finished Luke last month, uh, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to see that the author of Hebrews is very carefully, very painstakingly, he's going to show us that Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary's cross was sufficient for our forgiveness of sins. No angel died for you, no prophet, no great leader, spiritual leader died for you. Only Jesus went to the cross and died for you. And then number seven, the seventh uh, description here, he sat down at the right hand of the Father when he died for his sins. He didn't stay in the tomb, he rose again, and he would ascend to the Father. He sits at the right hand of the Father. It speaks of an exalted place. No angel, no prophet has that place of honor or exaltation with the father only the son. So in the descriptions of Jesus that we went through fairly quickly, Hebrews establishing that Jesus is preeminent in all things. So I pray that we understand that because there is so much teaching out there that will make Jesus, you know, less than what he is and and that yeah, he's the son of God, but he is created. They deny the deity of Jesus. Oh, he was just a great teacher. Listen. He is Lord, and that's what the rest of Hebrews is going to say. He's greater than the angels, as we're going to continue to see in chapter 1, because there can be, in some circles of Christianity, emphasis on, on angels and communicating to them and all of this, and he is the one that has brought us life. He's the author of our faith, perfecter of our faith, and life is found in him alone. So now we see that the writer of Hebrews, as the Jews at that time really esteemed angels and again there are some in the christian Um, in some circles that really esteem angels that jesus is to be esteemed much more than the angels the one who is the creator and uh, so uh, the author continues to make that case that the son jesus more superior than those angels verse five let's read for which of the angels did he ever say you are my son today and i have begotten you and again i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son so understand that it is the father speaking here We see that Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, quoted, speaking of Jesus, not an angel. There will be those that may knock on your door, that Jehovah witnesses that say that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Listen, you show them these verses in verse 5 to the end of the chapter that will indeed show that Jesus is not an angel. He's not Michael the archangel. And Jesus uniquely has the title of Son of God. Now, again, those who will come along and say that, oh, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. You see, Psalm 2 quoted here is, I have begotten you, but then they will try to confuse you. They'll come along and say, well, Jesus was created. That's what the Mormons believe. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. And in Colossians 1, verse 15, they'll take you there. And they'll say, see, he's the firstborn of creation. And they will explain it by saying that Jesus was created, and then he created all other things. But they misinterpret what that word firstborn means. That <coughs> word means priority. In other words, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it tells us that Jesus, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, does that mean that Jesus was the first one to die? No, a lot of people died before Jesus did. But what that word means, in other words, he was the first to die and rise again in an immortal body, the resurrection of Jesus, which proves that he is sovereign. The firstborn of creation speaks of both Christ's priority to all creation and his sovereignty over all creation. And then in verse 5 here, As he's quoting again from Psalms, today I have begotten you, speaking of the equality of substance and nature between the Father and the Son. Jesus would say that the Father and I are one in John chapter 10. And when the religious leaders heard that, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that he was claiming to be God. That's why they picked up rocks to stone him. And Jesus said, for what works do you stone me? They said, we don't stone you for any work, but you being a man make yourself out to be God. So they knew that he was claiming to be God, and we know that. Remember that in Luke chapter 20, Jesus' last confrontation with the religious leaders before he withdrew himself from them, that he would say to them, "That whose son is he?" Think about it. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And the religious leaders responded by saying the son of David. That was a messianic term. And then David said, well, then how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? And Jesus, quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David recognized that the Messiah as not only the son of David, but the son of God, that indeed he is Lord. And verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn Into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? So Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels worshiped and served Jesus, who is their God. Again, the firstborn here has the idea in verse 6 of highest position and honor. Angels are all throughout the scriptures, aren't they? And they are powerful. We're going to see in Isaiah that one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. We know that uh, angels are incredible. They're an awesome sight, but they are never to be worshipped. In Revelation chapter 22, John, overwhelmed by an angel, fell down to worship the angel, and the angel said, John, get up. Don't do that. You know, get up. I'm a fellow servant. We know that the angels worship Jesus, We saw that on Christmas Eve in Luke chapter 2, right? When Jesus was born, there was the heavenly host that praised God, and they were worshiping Jesus and giving praise to Him. In Revelation chapter 4, the four living creatures around the throne of God worship day and night. So the scriptures are very clear that God alone is worthy of worship, and it is the angels that worship Jesus and never desired to be worshiped except one lucifer and we saw that in isaiah chapter 14 that lucifer who said i want to be worshiped i want to sit upon the throne i will be like the most high and he fell and became the devil and as we continue here in verse 8 but to the son he says your throne O god is forever and ever quoting from psalm 45 the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, quoting from Psalm 102, "...in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And they will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail." So Jesus is superior to the angels because the Father himself calls the Son God. And again, verse 9 here, we see, Therefore, God, your God, the Father speaking to the Son, reiterating that he's the Creator, that he's sovereign, that he's unchanging, jesus is the same yesterday today and forever we will see in the book of hebrews and he is the one that is declared to be god sometimes people say i just wish the bible would say that jesus is god take him to chapter one here what is being told to us but to which of the angels verse 13 has he ever said sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Jesus is superior to the angels because he sits at the right hand of the Father. That is not reserved for any angel, and they are ministering spirits doing the work of the Lord and for to those and for those who will inherit salvation. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians it tells us, Paul says something interesting. It says one day we're gonna judge the angels. Jesus is superior. They are not to be worshipped but put on the same level as Jesus. We as Christians, you can talk to those who say, well, I, I try to contact this angel or, you know, communicate to the angels. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. There's somebody that called this week and, and, you know, got a friend that's going to a church that emphasizing communicating angels and all that. There's no one in Scripture that says that. We are to go to him, to Jesus. You remember that when we were looking at Luke, then in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the women came to the tomb, there was an angel on top of the stone. There was angels in in the tomb. Uh, Mary Magdalene would come back, and she looked in. There's there's another angel that's there. Uh, The women didn't say, ooh, angels. This is so cool. You know, this is so neat, you know. We saw angels at the tomb. We're going to write a book, you know angels at the tomb and they didn't they didn't care. who did they want to see? They wanted to see their lord and I think about Mary Magdalene, who saw those angels and then came back a second time and looked in and and, and there's you know angels and, and and she turns around and she thought she supposed that Jesus was a gardener, and she says where have you put him tell me where you have laid him and i will go and i will get him now that's love that a woman said i will go and get this 200 pound man if he weighed around there 150 to 200 pounds and i will drag him back and i'll put him back because love bears all things and what my hope and prayer for all of us here at calvary chapel is: we go through this book not only having an understanding that Jesus is superior, he's everything that we need, but that we would have devotion and love for him, that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ because there are going to be those who come along and they say, well, you need to trust in a church or you need to trust in this pastor or you need to trust in this ritual or you need to trust in these things. Listen, you trust in Jesus Christ and you look to him. And what my prayer is that every time that we go through Hebrews, that we go out of here just marveling at the incredible work that he has done and understanding that he is sovereign, that he is Lord. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you. You go to him, you learn of him, and listen, enjoy him. Will you enjoy him and know him? Church is important. There are things that are important to us in our lives, but salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And as you get to know Him, you're going to love Him. And as you love Him, you're going to want to walk with Him. And you're going to want to serve Him. And you're going to be in the Scriptures that declare Him. And you're going to marvel at His great compassion towards you and His mercies that are what, even as Jeremiah wrote, that are new every morning so father we thank you we thank you for your love for us we thank you for the work of jesus in our lives that we don't have to trust in a religious system we don't have to trust in a ritual we don't trust in those things we trust in you it is jesus that went to the cross once and for all he is superior he is lord and is in that exalted place sitting at the right hand of the Father so I do pray this morning if there's anyone here you think well I'm okay I'm right with God because I've gone to church or you know I I worship on Sunday or I've listened to Bible study those things will not save you it's not in taking communion it's not in being baptized it is in your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you he died for your sins he rose again he proved that the offering he made for you is sufficient for forgiveness of sin to conquer sin and death because he conquered sin and death. Will you come to Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Life is found in him alone. And so if you're here and you're thinking, wow, I've put my trust in other things or... How is it that I know that I can have the hope of heaven? It is found in putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Will you do that right now? Because he is better, and he has provided. And you can pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you, and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I have sinned, but you died for my sins. You purged my sins as you died on that cross for me, shedding your blood. And I believe you rose from the grave and you are alive. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for forgiving me. I believe that you're the source of eternal life. I thank you for the promise of heaven. And I want to know you and walk with you and to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for this new beginning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And listen, if if you're here this morning in this room, because I know that those of you out in a coffee shop, you can do this as well, but I want to pray for you. If you made that decision, just put your hand up and put it back down. You're making a a declaration that I do believe in the Lord. God bless you. Anybody else? Just put your hand up and say, I've made this decision that, that I'm declaring that I've come to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's not coming to church not listening to a Bible study, anybody else at all. And Father, I do thank you for, Lord, decisions being made. There may be some that I don't even know, maybe those listening on live stream, those in a coffee shop because it's full. There may be even decisions that are made in the children's ministry today, just as there was at first service. But Lord, I thank you that you bring salvation to us through faith in you. For those who have made that decision, maybe it's going to be later on the radio. But Father, may we trust in you, not only with our salvation, but trust in you that you're going to hold all things together. Fill us with your love. May we be surrendered to you completely in all things every day. And Lord, we thank you that you brought us to this place. I thank you for the work that you've done and bringing salvation to this to this place, to the hearts of people who have made that decision. I pray you bless them in every way. Lord, take us home safely this week. May we reflect you in some way, your light, your truth, your love, to others around us, declaring Jesus is Lord in every way. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he? Would you please stand?